Our reading this morning will be taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1049, 1049, beginning with verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Good morning. It is good to see each of you again. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. It's an honor to have you here. It encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Two individuals were great baseball fans and great friends on this earth, and they oftentimes talked about, I wonder if there'll be baseball in heaven. Well, one of them died, and he found out that there was baseball in heaven. So he came back one night, and the other one sleep, and he said, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the other one says, well, what is it? He says, which do you want first? He says, I want the good news first. He says, the good news is there's baseball in heaven. He says, man, that's great. What could be bad if there's baseball in heaven? He says, you're pitching tomorrow night. (laughs) Now, isn't it interesting that usually when we hear jokes about death and heaven, there's almost always a negative side. There's almost always something that, hey, that's the bad news. You're, you're not going to be on this earth anymore. Isn't it interesting that when most of us think about death, oftentimes our thoughts are flooded with the negative aspect that we're not going to be on this earth anymore. This morning, I want to ask you to think about death in the way that the Scripture speaks of death. This morning, I'd like for you to think about when we see individuals die that are in the Lord, we have an opportunity to show the world about us. We have the opportunity to capture the heart of a community by them seeing a grieving process that is different from what is ever found out in the world. Look again, if you will, at the first verse and the last verse of our text this morning. The first verse, in verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And then he speaks some wonderful words that we will study this morning, and he concludes those words by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, there's something comforting that Paul believes comes out of the idea of death. And there's something about it that he doesn't say that there's no grief whatsoever. I need to note here, and I need to hear this very loud and clearly as we begin this lesson. 
Paul is not saying that Christians do not grieve in times of loss. But he is saying we do not grieve as those that are out in the world, those that have no hope. And let's think for just a moment as we begin this and set this stage this morning for this lesson. Let's understand what he means by hope. He's not talking about something casual where maybe someone has already said to someone in your family this morning, I hope we can run by Walmart this afternoon. I hope we'll go by the mall. I hope lunch is delicious today. We're not thinking about things here that are casual where he says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. He's talking about something that's very similar to our faith. In other words, it's something that is foundational. It's something that we look to. We don't see it at this very moment, but yet in reality, we know by faith that there is a heaven and we hope for that heaven. Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians, the second chapter. In Ephesians, the second chapter, he gives us great insight to this hope here. In Ephesians 2, now keep in mind, as we're talking about this hope, we're talking about those that die with this hope have something wonderful. Those that are grieving the death of those that die with this hope do not grieve in the same way as those that are out in the world. Well, what can we learn about this hope? He's talking in verse 11 to the Gentiles. And now we read in 12 and 13 of Ephesians, the second chapter, that at this time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, something has been transformed. Now, we move from that verse to this verse. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off and have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, what is it to have no hope? It is to be without God. Not in Christ, but in the world. And so when individuals have hope, they have been brought from a godless individual, from living for the world, to an individual that lives for God in Christ. You know, that's why we read in Romans 6 and 3 and Galatians 3 and 27 that we are baptized into Christ. Baptism is that way in which we respond to the grace of God as a hearer and a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and one that wants to repent and turn their life from the world and from sin and to God. And when we do that, we're willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And baptism is that final point where an individual leaves the world and now they rise because they are now in Christ. Their sins are cleansed. Now they live that Christian life. How? In hope. And so it is in this kind of language that we read in our text this morning that those that die with hope, they leave for survivors a grief that is very, very different. I want to note this as we begin this morning, and I ask you to please think about this. If you're not a child of God this morning, not only is your soul at risk, but you're also going to leave a miserable grief for your family to experience. I'm not suggesting to you that you ought to become a Christian this morning based solely upon your family. But I am suggesting to you that the Scriptures clearly teaches that when an individual chooses to live their life for God, the grief of the survivors is much different for those that do not. What is a man thinking when he won't give his life to Christ and he leaves a widow behind to grieve not only the fact that he's physically not there in her presence anymore, but he also died with no hope? What are individuals thinking whenever they don't care for their own soul and they don't care for the comfort of those they've left behind? 
Friends, I suggest to you that you're not thinking anything clearly. I suggest to you that there's not a reason you can give for not being saved, for not caring about the comfort of those left behind. There's something beautiful. There's something beautiful for those that do have hope. There's something beautiful for the survivors of those that have hope. Let's think about that this morning as we study this text. I'd like to compare two views here of dying with hope and without hope and the confusion that it brings. Look with me, if you will, this next slide, and let's look at a letter that this dates back to the second century. And upon first reading of this letter, one might say, well, you know, that's, that's uh, tender, that's emotional, that, that's a great comfort. But I'd like for you to really study, is there really any comfort in this letter? An individual speaks as one that is bereaving to another that is bereaving the death of one that they loved. And, and in an excerpt of this letter of the second century says, I'm as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. And all things, whatever were fitting, I have done. And all mine. And then mentions the ones that also have grieved. Epaphroditus and Thermuthian and Philion and Apollonius and Plantus. Notice this next line. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. Where's the comfort in those words? The author of this says, I've done everything I could do. My, my family's done everything they could do during this time of grief. And then finally, but there's nothing really that we can do. Is that really the way we have to approach death? Well, there's nothing we can do. Keep in mind, in pagan societies, oftentimes that was the acceptance. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about it, but there were some doctrine in pagan societies that did speak of life after death, but the ones that did hardly ever glorified it. And many of the pagan doctrines never even spoke of life after death. And so you can imagine being a paganist all your life and then going to the grave to bury someone that you love that's been a part of your doctrine. And there's nothing that I can say to comfort any of my survivors. There's nothing in our doctrine, there's nothing in our faith that says there's going to be a wonderful, wonderful reward. There's going to be something great beyond this. Now, let's compare this if you'd like to turn to Philippians, the first chapter. And we could go to many texts to think of the other side of viewing death. But let's look at one as Paul in Philippians, the first chapter. Notice what he says in verse 21. On the screen, you have 21 and 23. Note as we begin, Philippians 1, 21. Paul has a different view of death. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't say there's nothing we can do. This is empty. This is shallow. This is hollow. He says to die is a tremendous gain in our life. Now he goes ahead and says in 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul, how do you view death? He says, well, the truth is I view death as the better option. But if the Lord wants me to stay on this earth, I want to be about His work. I want to be active in His kingdom because I want other people to view death as the greater option too. Friends, I'm not suggesting to you that what I'm about to ask is an easy question. But I think all of us Christians need 
to deal with this question. Can I say right now that death is a better option for me? If not, why can I not say what Paul said? If Paul was a faithful Christian that realized that death was the greatest thing that could happen to a Christian because at that time they would be with Christ, which is far better. No wonder Paul could say to a group of individuals that were dealing with the death of their loved ones except because of their religious background and still young in Christ trying to get a grasp on the Christianity that speaks of not only life here but something that's much better after life and they're trying to grasp that concept and Paul's writing to them to say it is far better. It is wonderful. And because of that, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Well, why do we grieve? We only grieve for ourselves. When one has died in the Lord, we grieve because we no longer have them in our daily life. We no longer get to enjoy life on this earth with them. That's natural. That's normal. We also grieve because we're confronted with that ugly enemy, death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It'll be the last enemy that Jesus destroys. But we do not grieve for them. For to grieve for them would be foolish because they have found the better option. And so it is. We have a tremendous challenge and not becoming a citizen of this earth, and realizing that our citizenship is always in heaven, and we are simply passing through. As we go back to our text, I'd like for you to look again in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. And this time I'd like for us to look at 13 and 14, and as we strive to develop this text, let me point out to you what we'll also see as we're working through this. One of their questions must have been related to the understanding in their mind that Jesus would come again while they were alive. Well, when Jesus did not come again before some of their Christian brothers and sisters started dying, it became a great concern to them. If Jesus was going to come again while we were alive, but yet some are dying, are they going to be hindered in any kind or type of reward? Have they missed the reward? Or will they only receive like a secondary reward, if you will? And so Paul writes this to definitely give an answer to that. But he also gives us so much insight to the topic of life after death and the blessing that it is. You see, it's because we can know and we can believe So much that he tells us. Look again at verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Note that phrase, fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We've just discussed that line. Now look to the next verse. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Notice here the historical authority for this doctrine. Someone says, why do you believe in life after death? Paul, let's ask you, why do you believe in life after death? He says, I believe in it because I know Jesus Christ died and that he rose from the grave. And if we believe that, we too can know that we too can die and that we can be resurrected from the grave because Christ has victory over the grave. And so we have authority to believe this. We have proof in history to believe this. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to turn quickly back to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, he states this in a negative term. He comes from just the opposite because in 1 Corinthians 15, he was dealing, if you'll notice back in verse 12, with those that did not believe there was a resurrection. So because they didn't believe in the resurrection, he says in 17 and 18, notice the if-then statement here. If Christ is not risen... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see the if then? Okay, so you want to say there's no resurrection? If Christ is still in the grave, then all those that were followers of Jesus Christ that are now asleep, they too have perished. So now he writes to individuals that do believe in a resurrected Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4. And he doesn't state it exactly the if then, but it's the same teaching. Okay, if Christ has been resurrected from the dead, then those that are asleep in Christ, they're not going to perish. It's a beautiful teaching. But notice as we go back to that text in the fourth chapter in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, he uses the phrase twice to sleep. The first time he says, fallen asleep. You know, sometimes we today, I'm sure it's out of compassion. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Sometimes we do not like to say to someone who's just experienced a death in their family, we just feel a little uncomfortable using the word dead. So we'll sometimes say, I'm sorry they've deceased or they've passed on. I want to ask you, do you think Paul is using the words fallen asleep here because he's just a little bit timid to use the word death because it seems so final? I really can't imagine Paul dancing around the topic because he's saying that there's something wonderful on the other side of death. In other words, he's not trying to duck the topic here. Why then, if he's surely not afraid to talk about death, why did he continually refer to sleep? Well, there's past precedent for it, number one. He could read back, he being a great scholar himself, no doubt, of the Old Testament. He could read about David slept with his fathers. He could read about Solomon who slept with his fathers. He could read about Rehoboam who slept through his father, and literally many, many others. In other words, God has wanted us to understand that even though death on this earth is final, there's something much different about death for those that die in the Lord. Instead of us looking at a tyrant that's an enemy, that's taking away everything that's good on this earth, you know, that's the way the world views death. Oh, the worst thing that could happen is someone die. That's the way the world views it. And the Lord says, I don't want my children to see death quite that way. I'd rather my children see death as a sleep. Well, what is sleep? We usually think of sleep as something wonderful. At the end of a hard day, we go back to the surroundings we love and and we rest. And isn't it amazing how when we wake up, we're refreshed? And usually things just seem better. Now think of that describing death. A child of God that's labored for the Lord in his vineyard on this earth. He's given his all for the Lord. And some would even die a tragic death of persecution for the Lord's sake. And someone says, see, it was all in vain. Their life is ended. And the Lord says, oh no, no, it hasn't ended. They've just gone to sleep. And they're going to wake up on the other side. Not only refreshed, but far better than it's ever, ever been. I can remember as a child, sometimes at night, being distraught over something. Maybe I can't find something I need the next day for school. Or maybe a project just wasn't going well. And I could always count on what my mother would say. Son, go on to bed. It'll be better in the morning. I remember at a time in my youth realizing... You know, 
She is right about that. Isn't it amazing how things just seem better in the morning? Things that maybe you're staying up and you're pondering over them and, and it's anxiety and it's just not working out right. And so oftentimes, you can just sleep. And the next morning, it doesn't mean that none of it's there. But it is a lot better. No wonder the Lord refers to this transition from earth to eternity. And He says, it's a sleep. But notice this, as we think about the believing hearts, scan with me a few verses here, and let's pick out some high points that the Lord would want us to understand about this sleep. In other words, what is it that's going to bring comfort? In verse 15, we see that a comforted heart believes. Look at 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He wants us to know this isn't something that just a man dreamed up. This isn't some doctrine that came from some pagan belief. This is from the Lord. Well, what is it from the Lord? He tells us in the rest of 14. Now look at verse 14 that... Jesus will bring the souls with Him. This is a great comfort. Look at the end of 14. God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. Someone says, wait a minute, I thought the graves were going to be open and individuals were going to resurrect. They are, but that's the bodies. Remember, physical death is a separation of the soul and the body. So where does the soul go? The soul goes to a place of waiting. What's Jesus going to do? On that great and final day, He's bringing the souls back with Him as the bodies will also be resurrected. Friend, it's going to be a wonderful reunion that we are going to experience. That's why death is not going to be a loss for Christians. Also, we realize that when He comes again... His coming is going to be such that He can wake the dead. Notice verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. And then we see the very next line, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Isn't that amazing? Here we see that trumpet sounding. We see the voice shouting. We see the voice of an archangel. When we read back, and I'd like to read two passages to you quickly. If you want to turn to John 5 and 28... This, if we had time to read back even earlier in this, is a beautiful scene of Judgment Day and some things that's going to happen. But listen John 5 and 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves... What are they going to hear? All that are in the graves are going to hear His voice. Why? Because His voice is going to wake the dead and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. When we go to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the great chapter that deals with the resurrection, we read in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So when we see the voice here, when we see the trumpet, all of this is to awake the dead. But notice again in that verse in our text, He said, when the Lord Himself shall descend. The Lord's not going to send someone for Him. The Lord's going to descend Himself. He could have said, when a messenger descends. That's not true. He could have said, when the Lord descends. But He wanted more emphasis. When the Lord Himself descends. It's going to be a wonderful occasion when the Lord comes back again. The dead is going to be raised, but then to answer their question, will this hinder those that have died? We just mentioned at the end of verse 15, it's not going to hinder their reward. Remember, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That answered the question out of verse 15. It's going to no means precede those who fell asleep. 
Why? Because not only are they going to be raised, they're going to be raised first, but then also all that are children of God, they're also going to be raised. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. There's the reunion in the clouds to meet the Lord. Notice the emphasis again. To meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. As we see this reunion, the dead have raised. And then all that are left will be raised. Now, it doesn't tell us the order of when those that are non-believers will be raised, but we know they too will be raised. And in Matthew, the 25th chapter, we know that all that have ever lived will stand before the Lord and that there will be a great divide. On the right side will be those that are saved and on the left side will be the lost, dividing like the sheep and the goats. But now note, it is powerful that each time he says, we're going to be with him in the clouds, and then it's to meet the Lord and to live always with the Lord. What is it that's going to be so grand about heaven? It's going to be about being with the Lord. How much do you want to see the Lord? Someone that's done so much for us. And even though we can pray to the Godhead and thank them daily, isn't there something special about being able to stand for the first time in His presence and thank Him? Other scriptures, the writers would write and refer to it as a bride, the church waiting for the bridegroom. How much does a bride wait for that bridegroom? How much preparation for that day? How much do you long to be able to look Jesus in the eye say thank you? Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for going way beyond the extra mile. Thank you for saving me. I don't know in the spirit world exactly how our bodies are going to be. But I can just imagine if it's anything like here, what it would be like to go up and give Jesus a hug and tell Him thank you. When Paul longed for life after death, Have you noticed something? Each time he wants to see Jesus. Back in Philippians, he wanted to die and to be with Jesus. Here in 1 Thessalonians, the comfort is that Jesus himself will descend. That he'll meet Jesus in the air. And that he'll dwell with Jesus forever. Then he closes, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do these words comfort you? Or do these words disturb you? How do you view life and death and the afterlife? 
Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe that He's resurrected? Do you believe that He's coming again? And if you do, that would mean that surely you believe in your resurrection and you believe in the great reunion that you're going to have and that you'll dwell and commune with Jesus forever. If we believe all of that and we're living our life in Christ, we know that we can fall asleep in Christ and that it's going to be something wonderful, far better than this earth. But if we don't, if we don't believe that and if we haven't lived that, it's disturbing. You see, it makes all the difference. How do we live? Are we ready to die? And do we grieve for those that have died with hope? With hope? Horatio Spafford lived in the 1800s. He was a very successful Chicago businessman. His fortune was pretty much demolished in 1871, the Chicago fire. He was a very religious man. Before that fire, he and his wife were already grieving the loss of their son. With the grief of the loss of their son, and then with all that he lost in the fire, probably feeling somewhat like Job, he said, we need to get away for a little while. Let's take a trip to England. He still had some business things that had to be wrapped up. He put his four daughters and his wife on a ship bound to England. On the way, the boat was stricken by another boat. And history says in 12 minutes it sank. There were only a few survivors. His wife was able to cable back to him and to tell him of the disaster with the words... Saved alone. He lost most of his possessions. He lost all of his children. As he rode across the Atlantic, when he got close to the site where his daughters had died, he wrote these words. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. No doubt with that great reunion on his mind, he wrote these words. And the Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Whether or not you and I believe in the resurrection changes everything about the way we grieve. It doesn't take away the pain of separation. But it does give us tremendous hope in reunion. Are we showing that to the world about us? Do we really believe it? Or have we married this world so much that we would dare say the words, death is the end. Death is the worst thing that could happen. It's just one of the enemies Christ will destroy. For there will be a great resurrection.
If you're ready for that great resurrection, we all need to say a prayer of thanksgiving to the one that makes that possible. If you're not ready, I would urge you this morning to make yourself ready. We've already talked about what to do to become a believer. If you need to do that, or if you need to repent of sins and confess sins and pray forgiveness, we can help you.